Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Paul Howard-Jones is the Professor of Neuroscience at the School of Education at the University of Bristol. He was a school teacher too before becoming a trainer of primary and secondary teachers and inspector of schools. His work, since arriving at Bristol, has focused entirely on issues at the interface of cognitive neuroscience and educational theory and policy. He is particularly interested in addressing neuromyths and the neural processes by which games and learning games engage their players and can support learning. He is author of several books, a ton of academic papers, and you may know him from the BAFTA-nominated series The Secret Life of Four-Year-Olds. So welcome to Professor Paul Howard-Jones to this Get a Grip uh, podcast series. It's wonderful to have you today, Paul. Yeah, it's great to be here, Cathy. And we have to ask, I know in addition to being an academic, you are a parent, and I'd love to know how you're faring during this lockdown period. Well, not too bad. I mean, I was sort of living a hermit's life to some extent already because I was working on some publications when when the whole thing hit off. I think as a parent, it, it is a bit more difficult. And I suppose I have two children that are living with me at the moment. The other ones have gone off to university. They're in lockdown in, in London. But I think the real, the, the, the biggest problem, I suppose, for me has been the A-levels. So one of my children's A-levels has been interrupted. And I think that's a concern. I don't really know what to be thinking about that at the moment. Uh, he's decided that his A-levels are over. I'm not quite sure if they're over or not. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm getting the feeling that schools are taking different approaches on this. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. There's just sort of a question mark. And I think it's that's uh, it's kind of a worry. But uh, my my other lad in, in year nine, uh, he's 13 years old. He's going to go be going into year 10 next year. Um, he, he seems to be keeping to a sort of a, a good structure and he's, he's getting lots of work done. So I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably happy at, at the moment. And so many things, you mean, you are an expert in in such a vast array of topics, but today I really want to bring it down to what contextually is interesting and meaningful to parents. And first of all, I want to talk about homeschooling. So parents have suddenly been thrust into the kind of teacher type role and I think many of them are understanding how complex learning and teaching is. Yes. I mean, because that is the big difference, isn't it? You know, the, the parents that are now having to think about homeschooling are, are not ones that have chosen this as a, an alternative option and have spent months or even years thinking about education, thinking about alternative provision, thinking about their, their role in that. And working up to making decisions, <laughs> just people have just suddenly woken up to find that they are their child's teacher, essentially. And I, and I, and I suppose this one of the things that worries me is I don't, I'm not sure at the moment whether parents realise how important that role is to, to 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 making sure that their child is not spending all of next year catching up, really. 
Well, this this is at the heart of it, isn't it? That, you know, I think their parents can be put into sort of different categories. Those that think learning should take a big back seat at the moment and others who are desperate to get it right. And everyone's sort of muddling through with schools giving very sort of different, uh, have very different approaches. And I think as you've described earlier, that sort of ambivalence in guidance. And I think what I'd love to do with you today is just iron out areas that we both think are terribly important for the short term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think the thing that's really struck me, so I was, because obviously we haven't got any research on the effect of pandemics on children's education, you know, in, 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 our, in our context. So that just doesn't exist. So where do you go to find out, to look at data that might tell us something about what's going to happen to children's education? And I was looking at research on summer learning loss and I was really struck by that because it kind of confirms what I, I feared because of the way in which the brain learns. Because the, we find out things, we discover things in, in class through, you know, from our teacher, from wherever, but they need to be consolidated for them to become a type of learning that we can draw on easily and, and, and accessibly and, and it, for it to be there permanently in our minds. If, if it's not rehearsed, if it's not practiced, we actually lose that learning. So a lot of what children have actually learned already this year at school is now being lost, I, I, I fear. And if you look at summer learning loss, I mean, for example, in America, where they have 12 weeks of summer vacation, they were showing that spelling can be behind by four months after that vacation. So that means that the child has to spend another four months after they return to school to get to where they were before the summer vacation. So, you know, <laughs> It's not as if children are just going to pick up from where they left off a few weeks ago. Actually, many children are going to be spending all of next year trying to catch up with where they were a few weeks ago. Yeah, and that is concerning, I think. Two things from what you've just said. So I think most parents are unaware of that summer slide which is in in other times, in non-pandemic times, it is important to do little and often during the summer, as you say, to sustain the learning that they've, they've undertaken during the year. But what you're making me think is that parents really, instead of starting afresh with topics, that they could go over old school books and try and ask children what they've learned in a particular topic. And that could be their role instead of being introducing new ideas, which as you understand is very complex in teaching, but they could help them go over old topics. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start because not only you know, if you're discussing with your child what they've already learned, you're getting their books out, if you've got their books, because I mean, you know, some of the children may have left those behind in their schools. But if you've got those materials, going through them, having those conversations, not only will it help consolidate your child's learning, and that in itself is a really important part of education and what you can do for your child at the moment. But of course, it would also make you more familiar with that material. So that when you're supporting your child with anything new, you'll be able to encourage them to make links to what they've already known. Well, sorry, what they've already learned. Yes, that's a, that's a good place to start. Because, I mean, another, you know, another way of doing it, and I'm not, I'm not criticising this, but you, you could sometimes you can just use what you might, might happen during the day as a learning experience. So, you know, you're doing some gardening, so come and find out about how things grow. And I think that's great, and I'm, I don't want to discourage that because that, that can be really helpful and important. But, you know, it doesn't substitute for actually 
helping to continue your child's experience journeying through the, the curriculum uh, that they're supposed to have been learning at school. But this is where the relationship between teach, school teacher and parent is so critical. I always enjoy using the metaphor of passing the baton. And I think that baton has been dropped during this process because what parents want to know is what they have learned in parent speak, not teacher speak, and understand the questions we can ask our children in order to consolidate that knowledge, in order to identify gaps in knowledge. And then there's a process of what we can do about it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I would agree with you. Although I, I, I don't want to blame the teachers too much here because this is unknown territory. And of course, teachers are still teaching in their schools. And then on top of that, they've also, because, you know, they're teaching the children of key, uh, key workers. But then when they get home, well, presumably, or in their lunch hours, they're also sending this material through to the children who are at home. So uh, they've got quite a, a lot on their plate and nothing has really prepared them for this situation. But I would agree with you. I think that that, that would be incredibly helpful to, to know more about what the child has learned and what the communications to parents about how they can be supporting their, their children and the sorts of questions they should be asking and discussions they should be having. Yes. I mean, really, what we're referring to is simplifying the, 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 the process and actually, you know, alleviating the burden to, to some extent on teachers, because I think that a lot of what they send home could be so much simpler and much more able to give that parent some confidence that they're able to actually do it. Yes, and I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, the other issue is that I can, I can only talk about my own uh, child here but none of the work that he's sending through is actually getting seen by a teacher as far as I know so he's doing the work sending it through and then not getting the feedback well now this is a very interesting point in terms of sort of the rewards that come with you know your child has exhibited great deal of motivation to do that work how do you sustain knowing what you know his motivation when he's not receiving any kind of sort of feedback verbal or written feedback or reward for what well he's I done? stick my nose in so I, and I think this is <laughs> I think this is the message that we've got to get out to parents is to stick their noses in you know it would be it's quite tempting because we're all really busy and actually I'm, I'm busier like many people at the moment than I've I have been outside of the pandemic, but but actually we haven't got that teacher in the room doing the marking, giving the feedback, giving the encouragement, acknowledging uh, the children's progress and development. So I, I think we, we have to get involved and we have to watch what they're doing and praise them, uh, you know, when they're, when they're doing well for their effort and, and really support them in that. There is no substitute for a teacher. It, it's great having the, the resources sent through from the school and the worksheets and, and the, the tasks and things, but there, there is no substitute for having a, having a teacher in the room. And, and, and mum and dad is now that, that teacher. And I, I, I just think it's really, really important. And I, there's, there's so much information that people want to hear about in terms of the virus and, and all the rest of it. And, I, and I, I do understand that. But this this issue of children's education and the loss that we're, we're facing, you know, really hasn't gained enough attention. And we need to get the message out there that the, that the parents need to now really stick their noses in to what their, their children are doing in terms of their, their education or, or, or not. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. We, you know, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we've we've set up with STEM learning. I've set up this 
resource for parents to find out more about the learning process because you know but I, there's no I, I would not imagine that parents do feel kitted out to be able to do this but just some basic understanding of how learning proceeds it can give that extra confidence to parents to to get more involved and then they really do need to get involved so one of the things some of the things that you've just you know the the, the psychology of learning the science of learning I'm, I've pulled out a couple of things that from your book, which is called The Evolution of the Learning Brain. And I just wanted to sort of chew the fat with you about these and how I can apply them as a parent at home. So one of the things you talk about are social rewards. So children being amenable to stickers, potentially primary school children, you know, an award chart, understanding their own progression through a subject. Is that particularly motivating? And if so, why to, to young children? Yeah, so so social rewards, um, they activate the brain's reward system um, as if we're being offered chocolate cake or, or money or something like that. I mean, it's being told well done actually produces a you know an observable response in the brain. And, and actually, that does two things. First of all, it, it orientates your attention more to, towards what the context in which that reward, that social reward, that praise, that acknowledgement has, has occurred. But it also actually, we, we now think it increases the plasticity of the brain and makes it more likely that you're actually learning that situation as well. So so this is as a result of uptake of, of dopamine, uh, which, which you know, you can see in a variety of different contexts. And, and it has been found that the greater that response and the more learning is likely to occur in that situation, which makes sense because, of course, in evolutionary terms, if you came across some bush of berries or something or some very fertile hunting ground, you want to feel happy, you want to feel motivated to approach it, but also you want to be able to remember what's going on so that you can, you're more likely to be able to repeat that experience. Now, the other thing that you mentioned is that just sharing attention can be rewarding. Can you sort of put that into context in terms of parent as teacher and their child? Yeah, so it's it's not. I mean, it's not just rewards that activate the reward system. I mean, I think this is quite what what stuff that's coming through from neuroscience, which is quite interesting. And novelty, for example, will will activate the reward system. Something that's different, something you haven't seen before, and it'll have that you know effect of orienting attention and increasing le- learning likelihood. But yeah, sharing attention, uh, and uh, this is yeah, this this is really important because it, it, it probably forms a basis in evolutionary terms of how we began to, to learn in the first place uh, because once you share attention with somebody and you're noticing their responses and you're listening to them then it, it, it becomes easier to have that conversation backwards and forwards that enables learning to occur whereby the parent is is finding out what their child learns and their child is actually listening to the parent so that shared attention is really important and we enjoy doing it uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, sport attracts such massive numbers into stadiums because it is just much more pleasurable to be sharing a task or, or, or an experience with, with somebody else. Uh, now, of course, at the moment, <laughs> this is not very easy because you know children are quite often motivated to do their lessons because their friend next to them is, is doing it, um, and the whole class is you know showing interest in doing it. That has dropped away. They're not part of a class anymore. So that 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 type of motivation has disappeared. I mean, luckily, we do have technology. So one of one of the things that, that could happen is to, to get together with other parents, maybe, or, or at least encourage your child independently to share what they're doing with another child online. 
uh, with one of their friends online. So to, to use technology so that we're actually sharing our learning and, and having discussions about it. And we're aware that, you know, we're, we're involved in the same sort of experience. So that's an absolutely brilliant tip and one that I hadn't considered before is potentially between parents setting up that little classroom between two or three children who are ordinarily sitting beside each other in the maths lesson and giving them the same worksheet to do. Yes. I mean, I think that that sort of um, action together is likely to be much more, much more effective and strong if that is possible. Fantastic. But of course, you know, with teenagers, the other thing to do, you know, is to get the teenagers to, you know, encourage them to, you know, share their work with their friends and find out what their friends are doing and, you know, work together. Now, I want to ask you about, I I understand this, I have done as the protege effect, that may be incorrect, where, where you ask your child to teach you something and that that act can actually consolidate their knowledge. So what is it between when the when you ask your child to teach you something or to tell you what they've just learned from watching the TED video with a TED talk? What is it that happens within that dynamic that's beneficial for learning? Well, this is in a way, this is an example of a of a much more general sort of principle about learning. Um, that the more ways in which you represent a concept, the more usefully you have learnt it. And it, because when you draw something, when you talk about something, when you hear something, um, when it's in a diagram, when it's in a video, whatever like that, when, when you're experiencing a concept in lots of different ways, you store it in different ways in your brain, and that makes it more accessible. And the the, the metaphor I always use this example of a hat. Like, why is why is a hat useful? Is it you know how how useful is a hat? Well, actually. If you've got lots of different hats in your house, a hat is much more useful because you're more likely to find a hat and you're more likely to find the hat that suits the occasion. And it's the same with how we represent an idea in our brain. The more multiply represented it is, the easier it is to get to that idea, but also it's easier to find a version of that idea that fits the occasion. And that really shows that you really understand it and that you can apply it. So when you when you ask a child to tell you what they what they've understood, they're having to put it into a new representation in terms of their own words, um, and and that you know as well as making it explicit so that they can they can hear themselves saying it, and of course you're enacting it, so that makes it more memorable as well when we enact something. It, it's also another form of representing it. It won't be you know it'll be their own way of of saying it. So, yeah, de- definitely. I mean, this goes back because we were saying earlier about how useful it is to ask children about what they've already learned. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that in itself will help consolidate that the learning for that for that child, as well as inform you about what they know so that you can help build on it. You're also making me think about when I was doing revision with my year eight son recently, he was skateboarding around the kitchen, I doing his verbs. There was a lot of physical activity involved. Then we went outside because I felt that if he could re- conjugate those verbs in a different context, it would somehow intuitively, I felt it would test his knowledge more. So it's, you know, that kind of diversification in in place and context and coming at that subject from different angles is what you're referring to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Using, applying an idea in different contexts, in different ways. The, 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 the more different ways in which you apply something you've learned, the, the more useful that learning will become, the more you're likely to remember it. 
One of the things you referred to earlier was novelty. And I want to return to that in the context of praise, because my understanding of giving effective praise to children is that if it comes across as quite surprising, perhaps given in a different tone by someone new, or sort of it just it surprises them, that they're more likely to be motivated to repeat whatever that initial behavior was that merited the praise. Yeah, so, I mean, again, this comes down to the way in which the brain's reward system responds, because it's very much based on expectations. So it's not so much whether you've got the, you know, how much the reward is worth, if you like, you know, whether it's a, a very nice thing that somebody said or an even nicer thing. It's more the extent to which it surpasses your expectations. That's the thing that really makes an, an impression. And of course, that's that's a bit tricky because there's, there's a sense in which we want to heap praise on children all the time because we, we love them and we think they're wonderful. <laughs> but, but then you've got this problem that actually, children become habituated to it very quickly. And if they're always getting well done, uttered in the same tone in response to the same sort of task being achieved, it, it sort of begins to lose its um, its impact in terms of the, the way in which the brain is, is responding anyway. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because... It is a challenge. It is a challenge. But the way the, uh, there are ways around it because actually, in a way, your brain's a bit stupid. So it, 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 it's not like it spends a lot of time thinking is this very similar to praise that I've had before? So just just changing it, um, using different words, and you're right, from different people especially, but also, um, you know, there are ways in which we can acknowledge achievements with points and stars and badges and stickers. It's a matter of using a rich variety of different ways of rewarding children, um, and that that's that's always going to produce more of that that effect that you want of of motivation and and, uh, pleasure in learning. I have to ask about gender. Is there anything, I mean, I only have boys, so I can ask you about that. But are there any, you know, little things that you think parents should understand, if anything, about that reward system and how it's received by boys or girls? Well, you know, (laughs) this is a difficult area, isn't it, gender? So in a way we're talking about, are we talking about sex differences or are we talking about gender which and, and you know I, I always say genders an interpretation and, and sex differences are biological yeah, probably sex probably. <laughs> you're the you're the guy who knows the right terminology yeah depending on your your hormonal balance let's say you, you are going to respond to situations differently so and it's terribly you know we are generalizing terribly here but uh there are there are for example empathy is a, is a is an example where across the lifespan almost from birth i think they've measured it now empathy seems to be higher in girls than it is in boys so there are you know there are measurable sex differences but of course the the big issue is that the differences within any category and this is also true for gender so the differences within boys always much much greater than the average difference between boys and girls so you know you have to be really careful not to to generalize but it, you know, it isn't. You will notice that in general, um, boys are are much more active than, than girls when when they're younger. You will notice that boys tend to lag behind um, in a range of different areas when they're sort of three, four, five years old. And in terms of the reward system, it seems to be the case that so the reward system will will respond to uncertainty. We, we tend to like rewards that are more uncertain generally. Um, so 
rather than offer somebody a point for a correct answer, what you can do is say, if you get a correct answer, we'll spin this coin. We'll toss this coin and either you'll get two points for heads or zero points for tails. Now, statistically, you're still giving away the same number of points, but actually the reward system will respond much more strongly when there's an element of chance involved. I mean, this is the the basis of games if you like and boys seem to respond to that more than more than girls well i cannot believe how much my 10 year old responds to to the reward of a lucky dip of a chance to put his yeah, hand in the yeah 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 that's it that's, that's reward uncertainty it's magical he'll do anything to get his hand in that lucky yeah, dip yeah i mean i started getting interested in this when i we were having huge arguments about who was going to sit in the front seat of the car and you're taking three kids to school or maybe four in some days and it was like what do, what do you do about this and I, and I did a rotor and the rotor still resulted in lots of arguments and eventually i just started tossing a coin um, or throwing a dice and they loved that and they were completely accepting of it so that's the thing it's a way of disrupting rewards so they're a bit more unpredictable but it, it does have to be seen to be completely random so it's no good you know if a parent just decides oh well actually you know you're not having a reward today and you are having a reward tomorrow because that's seen as really unjust and that will really interfere with your relationship with your child if you do that <laughs> but if it's a matter of as you say a lucky dip especially because there you've got some agency because it's actually your hand that's going into the lucky dip because we, that's another thing which increases reward system response. But yes, that seems to be fine. If it, or if it's a spin of a wheel, you know, that's that's fine. That's really That just makes it more enjoyable. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, that's one of my biggest parenting tips is create that lucky dip pot. One of the things that sits uncomfortably, I think, with parents is, you know, sometimes parents will say to me, I don't want them to always have a reward for doing something or always have, you know, you know, a prize or, or are we in some way promoting even gambling? You know, this is what parents will think about this kind of giving in to a system that seems so desperately attractive to children. Can you understand that? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, when we're talking about rewards, I mean, I'm not talking about using a wheel of fortune or anything here but but just you know, when we're giving praise these social rewards as i say you know impact on the brain's reward system in the same way as winning points or or, or you know spinning wheels of fortune and such like so i think we do generally as, as parents be offering we are offering reward all the time by the way in which we respond to our children and, and show interest share attention with them um offer praise when it comes to Introducing elements of chance uh, when you have some sort of point system, so it starts becoming, you know, more like gambling or something. But it's in a way, it's, it's not gambling because there's no money involved. And actually, all games, it's almost the defining quality of a game is that it has an element of chance in it. So what you're really doing is just turning learning more into a sort of a game, um, which can be re- really effective. So you know, I would say, well. There's no link between playing games, be they board games or video games, and and gambling. And actually, our reward system is responding all the time. You know, so we should be we should be feeding that in a way that is beneficial for learning, so that it's beneficial for the child. And um, we should be you know we should be aware of of, of how our brains operate. Well, this is a a good point to bring in games, video games. And I know that you've spent a great deal of your academic life sort of looking at what goes on in the brain when our children play whatever games they're interested in. 
no one can deny how engaging these games are to these children. And they've become so sort of, you know, beautifully graphic in some cases. It's so engaging. And every parent will ask, they want to understand what's going on when that child, they seem, some children do seem to be heavily engaged, too engaged in these games. I think parents need some reassurance around how the brain, you know, what's what's it doing to the brain? Well, I mean, we've been talking about the fact that scoring points, and especially when there's an element of uncertainty, activates the brain's reward system, and that orients your attention towards that context. Now, with video games, oh, and also we've been talking about the agency. So the fact that, you know, if you're involved with that and you're actually producing actions in response, so like your hand's going into the lucky dip or you're spinning the wheel of fortune. With video games, it's a constant, rapid stream of that sort of stimulus. You know, you're winning points every few seconds. There is always elements of uncertainty. They are games. And, you know, pragmatically, video games have developed in in ways that match you know almost perfectly the way in which the 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 brain's reward system operates so it's it's not surprising you know that they are so engaging in that sense and it's quite difficult to develop a learning experience that produces rewards at such a rapid rate and in and in such an engaging way so there is as i speak i suspect a huge battle going on in the UK, between you know, for children's attention, between uh, schoolwork and video games, and I, you know, I, I think this uh, it is an issue. I mean, I, I, I like video games. I enjoy playing video games. I'm interested in how we can learn from video games to make learning more interesting. And I, and I, I've done work in that area and sort of shown that it's, it's you know potentially possible. But there is a downside to them, and one of the downsides is. You know, especially at night playing video games, they are very, very physiologically arousing and they do disrupt sleep afterwards. And sleep is incredibly important for learning. So, you know, we, we do need to, you know, in a way it goes back to a child maintaining some sort of structure in their day during this period. I mean, I've decided that we're in the holidays now. And I've decided to try to keep my kids to the structure that would have been there. So now they're off the leash and I'm being much more flexible about video games and all the rest of it. I'm slightly apprehensive when the beginning of what would have been the beginning of term comes around because <laughs> I'm going to have to reinstate. But I will be trying to reinstate that structure where you say, well, actually, you know, it's a weekday. It's a school night. You, you shouldn't be playing video games late in the evening because you've got to get to school the next day. You've got to wake up and do your learning anyway. But can we sort of differentiate? I mean, there are benefits to video games, which I do think parents are very unaware of. Certainly, I was aware of a study where surgeons who played video games had greater, you know, they were much speedier on the responses and potentially, I can't remember the exact details of the study, but it, it does seem to improve some sort of responses. Yes. Yeah. So the study you're thinking of is where it was shown that surgeons who played Wii games where there's a lot of manipulation, um, eye eye hand coordination required, were were better laparoscopic surgeons, and in, and and yeah, they are they they are pretty amazing in the way in which they can impact on the brain, and 
footballers are encouraged to use them because they're very good to uh, good way of improving your visual motor response. I mean, they're not terribly good at teaching you school curriculum. <laughs> I wish they were, but you know, they they do certainly teach and they teach incredibly effectively. And the sorts of things they teach, as I say, are these these changes in in cognitive function, and they can be very beneficial. So they're being used to in recovery uh, for patients who have suffered visual trauma or trauma to the brain involving their visual processing and th- those those sorts of applications. And I play them. One of the reasons being, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that they can help maintain your cognitive function as well as you, as you grow older. So I'm thinking, well, you know, I missed out on these things uh, when I was a teenager. We only had space invaders. <laughs> so I'm showing me age there. <laughs> But and they're much more fun now. So, I mean, I've got into them, but part of that is because I, I want to improve my visual motor response. I just feel I look at my kid, the way that they, they their hands move across that keyboard when they're, you know, responding to what's on the screen. And I want to be as quick as that. So I'm, I'm nowhere near, I have to say. But, you know, I do think it, it does benefit your response times. However, the downside, as you've articulated, is less about the game per se and more about when they're playing it and potentially having that technology in the bedroom. Yes. Yeah, I would, I would agree. So it's the... They're more disruptive than having a TV in the bedroom, for example. So I, I think it is a matter of sticking to routines and having limits and, and monitoring use. So if it has been shown that um, use in the weekends is much less disruptive to, to school time, which makes sense, you know, because they're not going to school the next day. So Friday, Saturday, in fact, actually, we, I mean, we've got to the point where we don't use them on Sunday night and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday nights. So and then the rest of the time, it's completely free so they can use them it's unlimited so they can have unlimited usage from a friday night until the end of sunday afternoon and i just find that's the simplest rule to be able to regulate their their use and i just know that during that period they're the least disruptive to to school study and presumably would you have a system whereby if your son is not performing at school not listening in class not behaving himself he wouldn't get to go is it a privilege I think I think if they weren't getting on at school, I'd I'd look first of all at why that was the case. Uh, I mean, I I, I'm more I think I'd be more interested in in knowing what they're having difficulty with, what they're not grasping or what they're not getting engaged with. Uh, It goes back to this idea that it's much better to find a way of motivating a child towards their learning than punishing them for not being engaged with something that they don't actually find very interesting. It's, it's much more important to try and get them interested in it, really. Because once they start accumulating negative feelings about a topic, you know, if, if it's because of maths that they're not getting their PS4 at the weekend, then, you know, they're just accumulating negative feelings about around it, really. At the same time, there are millions of parents who cannot get their 14-year-old off a computer where they're spending eight hours a day, which is totally unacceptable, isn't it, in terms of the impact it might have on their well-being? I think I call this digital hygiene, and it's something we all have to learn, and it's something that teenagers have to learn as well. And I think part of our job is to try to, and I think part of the job of schools as well, actually, is to encourage children to be able to regulate their technology use and to support them in in regulating it so i'm not a fan of children not taking mobiles in schools 
I think they have to learn not to bring them out in lessons when they're not when they've been asked not to. As you say, the the central message, I completely agree with you, is is around digital hygiene and digital values. So whatever digital values you have as a family, you know, that your children need to know that they're representing themselves and you and even their school when they engage with social media or, you know, so there's a lot. It's more of a parenting issue, isn't it, really? Yes, it's 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 a parenting issue, but I think it's a it's a school issue as well. You know, I just. I think there's there's more. I mean, what worries me slightly is that there we know quite a lot actually about digital hygiene now. We we know how video games affect sleep. We we know that certain types of video game can increase the likelihood of a, of a, an aggressive re- response in some scenarios. We know that texting after lights out produces children that are more sleepy the next day. We know bright lights on a screen disrupt melatonin secretion and so that, you know, that will disrupt your sleep. But the, these things aren't widely publicised. You get a lot of sort of hysterical conversations in, on the internet about it and a great sort of wrath against you, you. You tend to have two types of people, don't you? People who love video games and people who think that they're the devil. And, and I think that's just because the, the public generally, we should be working harder to inform everybody about the, the, the basics what we know about the research around this sort of technology one of the things you referred to earlier is that you play video games yourself because you're sort of conscious of improving you know particular you know responsiveness yes. or, but, but... yeah i'm only laughing because i'm so bad at them you know <laughs> compared with my 13 year old i'll never i know i'll never catch up but i do try you know I've got great resilience in video gaming, I think. We have to ask you what your favourite video game is now. Oh, well, it's Star Wars Battlefront 2. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm trying to focus on improving my um, my scores at anyway. Brilliant. Well, this is a very good point at which to bring in what I'm very interested in, as I know you are, neural myths, because... When you mention that you're interested in playing video games to improve the way perhaps your brain responds, there's a hint there that what many people believe is that some of these games will actually change the way they're, you know, really boost intelligence and IQ. And can we just talk a little bit more about some of the the myths around that? Yeah. Um, well, this is quite a controversial area. So I think I might get into trouble if I was calling it myths, because there's still we do have scientists who certainly believe that there are certain types of training you can do, computer based training, brain training, if you want to call it that, who can, that can change your cognitive function and change, change brain function in ways that really should benefit your learning at school, for example. So working memory training is is the classic one. Now, working memory is our ability to keep information in our attention so we can work on it. And it's a bottleneck for learning. So, you know, it's a very dependent, the size of your working memory is a very good predictor of your academic success and your professional success. So it would be great, wouldn't it, if we could train our brains and, and expand our working memory and then we'd see all these wonderful improvements in our working and educational lives but it's actually been quite a struggle trying to demonstrate that these games can can work in that sense and i think games that sort of practice maths are probably going to improve your maths but whether whether you can actually change your underlying cognitive function that easily using computer-based training 
you know, it, it, it remains. There, there's some interesting, there are some studies that show it's possible, some studies that, a lot of studies that have failed show it possible, and analyses of all of these have sort of come to very sort of cautious conclusions that, well, it might be possible, but we're not quite there yet. And there's there's a very, there's a much smaller number. I think we're sort of looking at maybe two studies that have shown there's some transfer to school learning. So it's a real struggle trying to find evidence of brain training games that can really do something for your achievements at school. That's that's the bad news. So the jury's kind of out on those. However, I am aware I might be sort of conflating two different areas that there's a lot of assistive digital technologies to help children with cognitive impairment. And I know that there's lo- lots of technology in the area of ADHD, computer games that potentially can improve attention. Is that correct? So now we're talking because I was talking purely there about children without any diagnosis. Uh, obviously, the situation is much more complex when you start looking at children with you know specific types of developmental disorder. And and I think there you you can see benefits, but I'm not sure that what you're talking about is necessarily a change in underlying brain function. Uh, you know, in, in terms of fundamental basic brain function. So, for for example. There's evidence to suggest that that children with dyslexia can benefit from playing a game called Graphagame, which encourages mapping of sounds to spellings. And you can see the, the change taking place in their brain as well as in their reading behaviour. But it, you know, the, the the game, first of all, we're talking there specifically about a particular learning context where you're practicing that learning context. And I think that's where games can really, really help. It's not necessarily changing something fundamental like working memory it's changing your you know your learning essentially but and also actually you know quite often and in most cases they actually find these games are not just beneficial for people with a diagnosis but they're also beneficial for people without the diagnosis so i think one of the things that neuroscience has done is actually raise a lot of questions about the way in which we categorize children with these with these labels of adhd and dyslexia and dyscalculia you know it, it it's 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 much more difficult from a biological point of view to be able to distinguish between people with and without a diagnosis. The diagnosis really comes about from saying a child has re- failed to reach a certain threshold in a certain ability, but that threshold is is quite arbitrary in a way. You know, you could put it here, or you could put it there. And one of the things that I think I've understood from your book is that sometimes it's very easy for for sort of people to give up on children when actually the, the the environment that the child is learning in hasn't been particularly responsive to their needs yes i i mean it's, we're all we're all very much a an outcome of our genes and our environmental history the things that we've experienced and i i do think i do think we we need to be mindful sometimes in the way in which we we talk about disorders i mean if if you take dyslexia for example actually you know until 100 years ago you would it would have been difficult really to to say that most people were able to to read and so you know it, it, it it's more difficult to sort of find the diagnosis of, of dyslexia on that basis uh, reading is actually an invention it's a human invention and you could argue that it's a flawed invention in the sense that this tool, which is now so much a part of our environment, doesn't match terribly well the 
entire spectrum, the entire genetic, you know, the genome, the human genome, essentially, the, the breadth of diversity that you have with, within that. It's a, it's a flawed tool in that sense, rather than saying that people are flawed because they, they find it more difficult than others. Yeah, it's such an interesting perspective. Returning to things that sort of issues or things, themes within education that people might be familiar with, but that might be potentially contestable and that the evidence may not be there for. And some of the, you know, these issues that we only use 10% of our brain, that has been discredited, hasn't it? Yes. So all the brain is active all of the time, unless you have a serious medical condition. And I think, you know, that there's a number of ways in which these myths emerge. This may be a myth itself, but I think the general belief is that that Einstein mentioned this on a radio interview that he did, although that radio interview has not survived to the present day. And I think it's, it's just a way people say it as a way of saying, look, you're not really tapping into your potential. You know, everyone knows we only use 10 percent of our brain. We've all got this potential we're not tapping into. And of course, that is true. But it also, it's come about because we've seen these blobs of activity in the brain when we, when we see brain images. We say, oh, look, you know, this part of the brain is activating because you're using language or you're being creative. When actually, it's just that that part of the brain has risen in its activity above a certain arbitrary threshold set by the experimenter. The rest of the brain is still active and contributing to the processing. It's just that that bit of the brain has has increased its activity. And the reason why this can be important is because we start getting into this notion that you've got one bit of the brain for this, one bit of the brain for that. And it feeds into a kind of folk cognitive neuroscience, which isn't very helpful because the brain is massively interconnected and you, you shouldn't be talking, for example, in terms of a, a visual, visual, auditory and kinesthetic learning styles, because you think that different parts of the brain are a different size. You know, the part from the visual is different to the part of the auditory. Actually, even your visual, auditory and kinesthetic processing is massively interconnected in the brain. So that if you just see a bell, your auditory cortex will activate because of that association with the sound. So. Yeah, these simplifications, like we only use 10% of our brain, they, they're often uttered with the, with the best possible intentions with, with, you know, to communicate something which is potentially, you know, maybe is valuable for us to remember we, we don't use all of our potential most of the time. But it, it, it is misleading. Sorry. Is, is the sort of assertion that you've just said about learning styles, is that applicable to neurodiverse children as well? Because I've heard, say, parents of autistic children talking about them as visual learners and they feel, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think that's, that's, that's the danger uh, when you start talking about visual learners and auditory learners. So there are, there are parts of the brain which are more involved with auditory processing than other parts of the brain. We do talk about a, an auditory cortex, for example, but it's very interconnected with the rest of the brain. So it, it doesn't make sense to start talking about somebody as an auditory learner, as if they only have an auditory communication pathway. And that's the only way they can learn. Yes, the kind of- exactly. And that's that's very dangerous because I, I think uh, so. a paper that came out this year actually showed that you know, there was a suggestion, not only did it show that there was no value in teaching to learning styles, but it also raised this very interesting point that actually when people say, oh, I'm not an auditory learner, it may be because they're having trouble listening to instructions or explanations 
or they're having trouble regulating their attention in that way. And that really needs to be focused on and practiced and rehearsed. You know, it's it's it, it, it may be the exact wrong thing to do to say, oh, okay, so you're a visual learner, we'll give you all your materials visually. So it just sounds like a big excuse not to get stuck into the challenge, something that's challenging you. It, it it could be it could divert focus away from a skill set that actually needs to be practiced and rehearsed and improved. I think that's my concern. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. That's very that's very interesting. The other thing I've picked up, which I thought was very interesting for, for, from parents from one of your talks, was that we might think intuitively that sugar, for example, will make them less attentive. <laughs> yeah. but that isn't particularly the case we better we better turn the volume down so the kids don't hear but can you say a little bit more about that well there's a there's a whole range of studies here and actually you know it's not very clear but it seems to lean in the direction of sugar improving attention because you've got that extra energy so i you know i i it is an example of a myth, really, because there's, there's more research to suggest that it actually improves attention than, than reduces it. But there are foods, and there have been foods anyway, and there are still foods, actually, that will affect your cognitive function. So there was a set of food colourings that were removed by EU law quite a few years ago, but they used to make up Battenberg cake, if you remember the yes. your grandmother. She used to eating make, that. eat it, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I imagine it's still around, but if it's sold in Europe, uh, it won't. It no longer contains those colourings that tend to produce hyperactive behaviour. Although I never noticed it in my grandmother, but so there were food colourings that, that used to be able to do that. But I think that caffeine is the is the thing which I would probably be most concerned about, which because that's a psychoactive drug which is freely available, and children only have to have two tins of a fizzy drink with caffeine in a day for them to be under-functioning in terms of their, their brain. And it's the same with us adults, with our cup of tea and our cup of coffee. We think it wakes us up, but actually when you're taking it regularly, what happens is that your your brain function becomes suppressed and it only goes back to normal when you've had your hit and then only temporarily. So, you know, you really be thinking more clearly and be more awake if you stay clear of the caffeine. Now, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. I just want to briefly mention breakfast because it struck me from a lot of your work, you talk about that is the nutritional kind of part of the day that can really affect learning. Can you just give us a few points about that? Yes, I mean, it's, it's often the um, the more ordinary messages <laughs> that, that get lost. And I was just thinking just before I mentioned, before I say anything about that, though, you were, we were talking about cognitive training. And the real difficulty that scientists are having trying to show that cognitive training can improve executive function. Whereas the thing we do know improves executive function, and it's really quite easy and straightforward to demonstrate, is exercise. You know, exercise is really good for learning. Um, it's so often justified in schools because of, you know, as, as a means of building personality and uh, physical fitness. But actually, it's really important for mental fitness and for learning. Um, and there's plenty of studies that demonstrate that. And then, you know, you're talking about breakfast. I mean, it's another everyday thing, which people might be taking lots of omega-3 tablets and other things because they, they think it improves their cognition. But actually, not really. The, 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 thing, the thing that really makes a difference is, is breakfast. And, and I used to think as a parent, it was shocking that uh, children, so many 
teenagers were not having breakfast in the UK. I mean, I'm a bit wiser now, having had so many teenagers, I now realise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you've scored majorly if you got them out of bed. <laughs> Can I give you a little tip and then ask you the science behind it? Because I've discovered if I put on a buffet in a small scale sense, to my boys, my 13-year-old, he's much more responsive to eating the breakfast if there's choice within it. Well, there you go, you see. I mean, choice is another one of those things that engages the reward system, motivates you towards a task. Even if the choice is is fairly, you know, it, it, it's not, you don't really know what you're choosing. So if you, and you maybe you want to try this, see if you get the same reaction if you put the options in a box and, they, and, and your 13-year-old can't see what's in the box and just say, okay, you've got choice, but you can't see what you're choosing. You've just got to choose one of the Ooh, a lucky dip breakfast. (laughs) It's a lucky dip breakfast. (laughs) That's brilliant. I am so going to try that. Now, Paul, before we finish, can you just signpost us to the resources that you'd like teachers listening and parents? Perhaps you mentioned those STEM resources that you've written recently. Yeah, I think the easiest thing is to go to stem.org.uk. Yep. And then when you go there, you should be able to find quite easily the i'm just checking it now on my computer you should be able to find quite easily a way of of getting there and those resources are about a little bit about the sort of the science of learning that parents will 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 can read easily yes yes that's that's right yeah that should be able to take you there and we'll flag them obviously to our parents and, and look forward to hearing how they get on with them brilliant thank you very much and do remember to post questions on there as well because we're looking forward to uh, being able to respond to the questions that parents raise about learning. I will certainly do that and encourage others to do so. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.